0: your people, we are people who have been rooted in the truth, not because we're smarter than the rest of the world, but because your spirit has opened our eyes to see things which we did not see before he opened our eyes. And we stand on that which you have revealed and believe it to be the inerrant and infallible truth. And sure as that truth shall last, O God, and indeed it shall, we your people look forward to an eternity where the promises of the fulfilled kingdom await us. And I pray, O God, that you might not allow your people to forget the great redeeming work that is ours in Christ. Father, it is so easy to get swept away in the stream of things. And to call that stream of things reality, when in fact there is another future, heavenly, eternal reality that should shape and affect everything we touch and taste and feel. And I pray, O God, that the truth of your word might flow through our very blood vessels. That we might have lives conformed to it and live in response to the leadership and power of your holy spirit oh god we do and continue to pray for our nation she is a nation that has moved far away from her founding father's dreams she is a nation that no longer reverences your word or fears the lord And we ask that you might use churches like this one and others to call this nation to return to her her roots and to return to the God who has so richly blessed this nation. Guard our, our president and give him wisdom as he makes very huge decisions that will affect us all concerning our country and what she must do. Our Father, more personally, there are people who are not concerned in this room about Iraq. There are people in this room who are not concerned about the economy even. They're concerned about their husband. They're concerned about their marriage. They're concerned about their children. They're concerned about their jobs. And so, Father, as we pause to take an hour to remember... Those things eternal that we believe bring hope and encouragement to the heart and souls and the refreshment to the souls of your people. Now, Father, accept our gifts. They are but a portion of the wealth that you have allowed us to make. We pray, of course, in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You probably have heard this story before, but... um, The name Karl Barth might not ring a bell to many of you, but Karl Barth is considered probably the greatest theologian of the 20th century. He's very controversial, but still considered quite a theologian. And on his deathbed, his students gathered around him and asked him, uh, Dr. Barth, what is the most profound theological truth uh, that you can remember? And he said, Jesus loves me, this I know. Or the Bible tells me so. Thank you, Paul. Take your Bibles, if you will, and open with me to the book of Deuteronomy. And uh, let me read you a couple of passages from Deuteronomy that I never tire of reading. I've uh, read them often. Maybe not often, but uh, I read them a couple of times from this pulpit. I don't think you read it again. Deuteronomy chapter 6, beginning at verse 1. You follow in your copies as I read Deuteronomy 6, verse 1. Now, this is the commandment, and these are the statutes and judgments which the Lord your God has commanded to teach you, that you may observe them in the land which you are crossing over to possess, that you may fear the Lord your God to keep all his statutes and his commandments which I command you, you and your son and your grandson, all the days of your life, and that your days may be prolonged. Therefore, hear, O Israel, and be careful to observe it, that it may be well with you, and that you may multiply greatly, as the Lord God of your fathers has promised you a land flowing with milk and honey. Now turn to chapter 10, which is really the same statement, st- said just a bit differently. Deuteronomy chapter 10, verses 12 through 14, you follow. And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways and to, uh, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and to keep the commandments of the Lord and his statutes which I command you today for your good. The grass withers and the flower fades But the word of our God endures forever. The point of that text, or those two texts, should be fairly obvious. It doesn't take um, a seminary degree to understand what's being said. It's a pretty brief, succinct summation Of the things that the Lord requires, and attached to it is this wonderful promise. The the point of the text are simply this is what God expects from us obedience. And tied to that obedience is the promise that obedience is for our good. It's a very remarkable claim, ladies and gentlemen. A very remarkable claim. One that I'm, I'm afraid, um, I'm not sure we believe. Now, uh, I'm, I'm going to say something now that I'll, I'll have to come back to at the very end. But I want you to notice that this, these passages are addressed not to uh, Madison Avenue. They're not addressed to Hollywood. They're addressed to us. The people of God. Keep that in mind. I think it was Spurgeon. Don't hold me to that, but I think it was Spurgeon who said that we needed to read the Bible with one hand and the newspaper with the other. (laughs) Well, I do read the newspaper and uh, uh, pretty thoroughly. And uh, I've got some things. This is yesterday's paper. I could have brought a dozen newspapers, but I didn't want to clutter the pulpit. Nor, But this is yesterday's. This is a section out of yesterday's paper. And, and I'll tell you about that in a minute. But back to my text. There is this claim that is made about blessing being attached to obedience. Which I think potentially... Is fleshed out, that is, this promise here is fleshed out numerous times a day, especially in the workplace. It, truly, uh, in the home and family too, but uh, today we are celebrating a holiday, or at least we'll tomorrow, and in view of Labor Day, what I want to do is focus not on how this text fleshes itself out in the home and family, but how it fleshes itself out in the workplace. What I'm saying is that the point of my text is something that will, I think, um, potentially confront you, stare at you, numerous times throughout every work day. Um, If I can say it a bit differently, ladies and gentlemen, numerous times a day, when you're at work, we're going to find out. Whether you believe this text or not, numerous times in a working day, we're going to find out whether you really believe that what has been said and read, or read first said and then read, whether you believe it or not. To um, to illustrate my point, well, I've got dozens. I mean, I could I could go on for hours illustrating, but let's. I'm saying again, if I, just for sake of clarity, that when you're working this text, you're going to get an opportunity to believe it or not believe it several times a day. Well, let me, let me just give you or try to illustrate what I mean. But the first thing I want you to focus on is this. It's said very clearly in chapter 10, verse 14, where it says, this obedience is for your good. Concentrate on just that portion of the text for a moment. Let's say that um, you choose to go to work for Enron. I, I tell you what, uh, let's, let's move closer to home. Let's say that you took a job at WorldCom. Did you see this pitiful picture in the paper yesterday? Of these people outside WorldCom? WorldCom? Offices picking up their their last check. Well, let's say you um, you go to work for Enron, or um, and uh, you've been working there five years, and um, your wife and you decide that it's time to have a baby, and so you decide that she's going to quit her job because y'all are going to have a baby, and on the day that she quits. You read in the paper that Bernie Evers has just sold $14 million worth of stock options. Gosh. <laughs> oh, those CEOs, they really got some perks, don't they? <laughs> uh, but, you know, that's what that's the way it goes when you're at the top of the heap. You know, you get those stock options, and and you know, that's just one of these days, maybe I'll be there. Don't begrudge old Bernie. His $14 million worth of worth of stock options. And so, um uh, a few months later, um, you read in the newspaper that there are some concerns at your company about misleading accounting. That's what they call it. In fact, Greenspan, which I, which I thought was, this was a piece of genius. Greenspan says that he has concerns about the quality of corporate governance. Now, that is really said well. He's concerned, you know who Greenspan is, don't you? I hope you know who Alan Greenspan is, because he affects every one of you, uh, every one of us. But he's concerned about the quality of corporate governance. Huh. he ought to be, he sure ought to be. Well, um, you go to work for WorldCom and Bernie sold his $14 million worth the stock options, And then a couple of months later, you read about misleading accounting. Um, And as a result of the discovery of this misleading accounting, uh, the stock in your company that was trading for $60 a share is now being sold for $0.06 a share. And on June the 28th, 17,000 employees... Lose their job. And you're one of them. And you come home to tell your wife of the horrible news that you just lost your job. And she greets you at the front door with the grand news. She's pregnant. Um. Obedience is for your good. Or let's imagine that, that you've been working at, um, um, uh, well, we're, we'll stick with WorldCom. And you've been working there uh, a, a few years and you feel like your job is safe and, and uh, you just got promoted. And, and um, you and your wife decide to go out and buy a house. And, you know, you really couldn't afford the house that you bought, but you were going to stretch a little bit and, you know, future look good. You just got that promotion. And, and um, right after you close on that house, June the 28th, unemployment lines for you because the CFO cooked the books to the tune of four billion dollars. So you may be ought to be careful about who you go to work for. But don't worry, ladies and gentlemen. In Monday's edition of the Commercial Appeal, there was a there was a there was a piece of good news for all of you investors and all of you people who want to want a job. And it is that there are there's a a, a great deal of emphasis going on in the uh, educational academic uh, institutions of America concerning ethics. And ethics being taught in all the business schools across the land. In fact, in this article in the Commercial Appeal on Monday, there were some six universities, including the University of Memphis, uh, where the business schools have gone to all their professors and told them that they needed to include some kind of um, uh, course on ethics. It's about time, don't you think? <laughs> yes, sir, Re Bobby. Um, these business scandals of the of the recent months. Um, have led everyone from uh, Al Sharpton to Al Gore to plead for corporate ethics. We want ethics in business. We sure do. The problem is, ladies and gentlemen, that no one seems to realize that, that ethics are impossible. Impossible, ladies and gentlemen, unless there is some kind of Value system, some kind of absolute, that, that provides the foundation on which ethics can be built. When there's no foundation, and, and our country can't agree on a value system that uh, that we can build a, an ethical system on top of. Just, um, I, I never tire of telling this story, but to, to illustrate the dilemma, several years ago back at the leading, arguably, the leading business school in the, na- in the land, Harvard Business School. Harvard Business School was given a $35 million grant from John Shad, who was the former uh, chairman of the SEC. Now, that's not the uh, Southeastern Conference either. That's the Security and Exchange Commission. The former chairman of the SEC gave to Harvard Business School a $35 million grant uh, with the stipulation that it be used to create an ethics department at the Harvard Business School. $35 million. Seven years later, and we must assume that Harvard gave it the old college try, but seven years later... That money has still not been spent. You know why? They can't find an ethicist that they can agree upon. This is about all they came up with. I want you to listen to this. This is a quote. In the midst of this whole pursuit, this is is what Harvard came up with. That teaching an ethics course today, quote seeks not to convey a set of moral truths, but tries to encourage students to think carefully about complex moral issues. Not to impart right answers, God forbid, but to make students more perceptive to ethical problems when they arise. That's all they got. $35 million grant, and all they can come up with is to say, we need to make our students more aware of ethical problems when they arise. But we sure can't give them any right answers. By the way, in the commercial appeal that same day, on Monday, there was another news article in there that it said that the American prison population is at an all-time high. And I, I, I want you to know, I'm, I'm betting that that prison population is about to swell with executives from Enron and WorldCom and Xerox and Arthur Anderson and Rite Aid and Martha Stewart. Martha Stewart. You know, um, tell the poor guy whose wife is pregnant and he just lost his job and he's in an unemployment line that there are no really right answers to ethics. Just tell him, while he is out there uh, beating the pavement, tell him um, that uh, all of the graduates of Harvard Business School are now more aware of ethical uh, problems when they arise. Tell him that. See how much comfort he gets from that. Let's let's forget um, let's forget working. Let's let's talk about investing for a minute. All of you investors out there, you know I am a stock owner. I, do you know that? I, I, maybe I've told you that before. I um, when I was working for Procter and Gamble, they had a stock option plan, and so they took money out of your check and and um, you know bought stock with it. Well, uh, during my Two years of employment, I bought one share of stock. And uh, <laughs> it split. Then I had two share. And it split again. Then I had four share. And guess what? It split again. I now have eight share of Procter & Gamble stock. So I'm a concerned investor myself. Um, let's, let's talk investing just for a second. Let's... Uh, uh, again, again, all I'm trying to do, ladies and gentlemen, is illustrate the point of my text. That obedience is for your good. Um, let's imagine that your father, who was fabulously wealthy, uh, took a chunk of uh, his money and put it into a trust fund for you. And that trust fund is heavily invested in Xerox, Enron, and WorldCom. Breaking news. Your trust fund is gone. Let's fast forward a little bit. Let's talk about all of our four oh one Ks, which you know, ha ha, ha they're now two oh one Ks, you've heard that a bunch. Um, we don't have 401ks anymore. They've all been uh, halved into 201ks because um, this creative accounting has spread to other companies. Now, um, with the with the stock market in a nasty slide, uh, down 7.8% since January one. Uh, why is that so? Well, there's lots of factors. Um, I'm sure that I don't have them all, but uh, one of the more significant factors contributing to the stock market slide is uh, what they call the loss of investor confidence. Yesterday's paper. Cautious investors consider annuities. They're getting out of securities. They're going to annuities. Cautious why? Well, here's why. Because investors who study the P&L statements before they invest, you know, corporate, institutional investors, um, those guys no longer believe that what they're reading in terms of a PL l statement is the truth. So how can one possibly make any kind of intelligent decision concerning uh, an investment when the data that is available, uh, hoping to lead me in my decisions, is all Packed with lies. Oh, we got in a recession, all right. We sure do. And every agency in America, including particularly benevolent agencies, ladies and gentlemen, Gracie Van, We've been hit hard. But we've got a recession, which is particularly hard on college grads looking for jobs. But we got a recession that, in part, has been brought on by dishonesty, corruption, greed, lying. Obedience is for my good. Would you... Um, Would you want to work for a company that you knew was deceiving the public, the investor? Of course you wouldn't. But there are many people who are on the streets today, ladies and gentlemen, because some CFO was a crook. So none of that concerns you? Oh, yes, it does, ladies and gentlemen. It concerns you far more than you know. Because there are people um, all over who don't give two hoots and a holler about the principles contained in my text this morning. You're a you're a young college student, or maybe a, a recent college grad, and you're dreaming about your future and making beginning to make some. Some tentative plans for you and this uh, girl that you've been dating? You better slow down, cowboy. Because that's not gold in them bar hills. That's red ink. Red ink that was produced by some shrewd VP who made millions off an inflated stock price. And then let 17,000 employees fend off their creditors the best way they know how. Those are shark-infested waters that we're swimming in, ladies and gentlemen. But don't worry. Don't worry. Harvard Business School is going to help us all out. Because they're going to teach all their future CFOs and CEOs how to be more aware when complex moral issues raise their ugly heads. I don't know about you, ladies and gentlemen, but that's not a whole lot of comfort to me. But I want you to once again look at my text. Look at the Deuteronomy 10 one. And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? To fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, and to love him, and to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments of the Lord and his statutes, which I command you today, for your good. Can you imagine the difference in the corporate world today if people were honest? Can you imagine the difference that it would make in corporate America if people simply observed the Ninth Commandment? Forget seven and eight. Eight's about stealing and seven's about adultery. Forget those for a minute. Can you imagine the difference that would be made in corporate America if we simply told the truth? Uh, Forget the corporate world. What about the world? Can you imagine the difference that would be made in the world today if we could count on the truthfulness of what people were saying to us? Don't you think that would make a better world for us to raise our kids in? Hey, forget about the corporate world. Forget about the world. What about me? Now here, ladies and gentlemen, is where I want to make a very significant point. You know, you look at corporate America and it's such a huge thing. And you may perhaps be seated out there saying, how can I make a difference in that huge maze of corporate arrangements? I, I, I know that's a, a, an ominous task. All I want you to remember is this. This text that I read you from Deuteronomy 6 and 10 is not addressed to corporate America. It's addressed to you and me, the people of God. What a difference would be made if we told the truth. Can you imagine the difference in the mental health of our nation If all the kids that were born in America today were raised in a home where a daddy loved a mommy and felt secure that the Seventh Commandment would never be violated. Can you imagine the difference in the mental health of our nation if no young little girl had ever been abused sexually by a relative? Can you imagine the difference that would be made If the seventh commandment were obeyed, you can't imagine that? Neither can I. But it sure does underscore the truth of my text. What good would exist, ladies and gentlemen, what good would be experienced if we only obeyed? Because every time you choose to disobey, what you are saying when you do is that you do not believe that what is stated here in Deuteronomy chapter 10 is the truth. I said at the very beginning, several times a day in the corporate world, this, this text is going to stare you down. And I'm saying again, tomorrow, well, we'll all be outside being eaten up by mosquitoes tomorrow. But the next day, when you return to corporate America, you're going to get 10, 12, 15 shots a day to figure out whether or not you really believe this verse. I want to close with two applications. And two applications to the people of God. I know it's a, I know it's a dog-eat-dog dog world out there, ladies and gentlemen. Um, I know that some of the stuff that you face is so complex. I, I'm, I'm very sympathetic, but it's no more complex than what Israel faced when she was about to move into her first promised land. And God was saying to her, now, ladies, my 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 people, here's what I expect of you. I have two applications. First of all, as simple as I can make it, I would ask you to pray that God would give you grace to believe this verse or these verses. Simply ask that God would grant you grace, that he would grant you faith to believe that these verses that I read to you this morning are really true. Because nobody's going to obey them until they first believe them. Jonathan Edwards, who is one of my heroes, probably the greatest theologian that this country ever produced. Unfortunately, the only things that people know about Jonathan Edwards is what they read in a literature book back in the 11th grade when they read his one sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And it is a powerful sermon, ladies and gentlemen, and indeed it's studied as literature. That's unfortunate. But uh, Jonathan Edwards, I'm, I'm not quoting him exactly, but he used to talk like this. He used to say that one of the problems in the minds of the people of God is that is that the less real we believe is more real and the more real we believe is less real. Now, what does that mean? Uh, let, let me try to illustrate Next Tuesday, you're on the phone with a client, and um, in the course of the discussion, your commission check pops up into the you know your mind's eye, and uh, as the discussion continues to unfold, there is an opportunity there for you to whittle away at the truth a little bit, but if you do, your commission check may be lost. So, the less real, the commission check, becomes more real than honesty and faithfulness and and obedience to the word of God. And the more real obedience to the word of God becomes less real and is less real than what is really real to me. And that's the commission check. So, the less real we believe is more real, while the more real we believe is less real. Gang, I'm, I'm suggesting that the first thing that you and I ought to do is go pray that God would give us grace to believe this text. You're, um, you're concerned about getting that promotion, climbing up that corporate ladder. And the more real injunction to be honest and tell the truth Becomes less real than the stairs on that corporate ladder. Gang, before you ever um, become an obedient follower of the living God, you must believe that what he is saying to you here is the truth. And so ask God the Holy Spirit to engrave the truth of this text on your soul. Because on Tuesday, you're going to get 12, 15 opportunities to demonstrate that you either believe it or you don't believe it. That's my first application. Simply ask God for grace. The faith to believe that what he is saying here is the truth. And then finally, my second application and closing application. Do you know the one who really did believe this text? The one who said, my meat and my drink is to do the will of my Father? You know him? Do you know the one who who obeyed perfectly on behalf of those who wouldn't obey perfectly? You know him? Do you know the one whose complete obedience resulted in death for him? But life for those who wouldn't believe perfectly and obey perfectly. You know him? Do you know the one who earned good but endured bad? So that those who earned bad could experience good? Do you know him? Do you know the one who was rich... But who became poor so that we who are poor could become rich? You know him. Soren Kierkegaard tells a story, a parable of sorts, about a vandal who breaks into a department store and he doesn't steal anything. But what he does is that he changes all the price tags on all the items in the department store. And so the next morning, the uh, store owners and the customers are absolutely shocked to find diamond bracelets for a dollar and cheap costume jewelry selling for thousands of dollars. And what Kierkegaard is trying to point out is that the gospel does that. The gospel changes, it, it changes everything around. It changes all of our normal assumptions around. Because I'm saying to you, ladies and gentlemen, the one who was good got bad, so the ones who were bad could get good. Do you know him? Do you know the one who lived the life that we should have lived, but died the death that we should have died? Do you know the one who exercised complete faith and illustrated and demonstrated perfect obedience? In the place of those who demonstrate inconsistent faith and imperfect obedience. Do you know him? Ladies and gentlemen, I refer, of course, to Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ did perfectly obey. But not as our example. Ladies and gentlemen, I am not standing up here this morning telling you that Jesus went out and obeyed. Now you ought to go obey too. That's not what I'm saying. Jesus obeyed perfectly, not as my example, but as my representative. Jesus is not, is an example indeed. But for a sinner such as I, I don't need an example. I need a substitute. I need someone who will accomplish righteousness for me and then will give it to me. Something I didn't earn, but something I receive as a gift. Do you know him? Then ask for forgiveness. And embrace Him. And then let's head back to the corporate world. As people who are changed from the inside out. My friends. The purpose of the gospel is not to create morally restrained hearts. I'm not trying to give you a new set of boundaries. What I'm trying to create by God's kindness is morally changed hearts. It's not moral restraint we're after. That's what the government is trying to produce. What we're trying to produce is moral change. That which is produced by the Holy Spirit of God. So from the inside out, all my assumptions and all my values are turned upside down. That's what the gospel does. Have you been turned upside down with the gospel? I hope so. Let's pray. Father, we all um, share concerns about uh, the economy and how it's going to affect us and what what damage it's going to do to each of us and all that business. But, Father, um, very frankly, we're a part of the problem. We have contributed to the uh, ethical malaise, to this ethical swampland, and I pray that you will remind your people that what you expect of us is to fear the Lord your God, to love the Lord your God, to cling to that God, and by His grace, obey, knowing that obedience is for our good, Father. Some of the bad that we're experiencing right now is because of our disobediences, and we ask you for grace, because Father, we are not here to uh, to try and correct our mistakes by better living. We're here to retreat to the gospel once again and claim its beauty as for our own. It is the gospel we needed before we met Christ. It is the gospel we need this morning. And I pray, Heavenly Father, that its great and glorious provisions will be the comfort of our soul. We commit ourselves to you afresh, Father and do so in Jesus' name.